at Hebrews 2 here, we have, let me just start reading on verse 1, although we're going to start on verse 3. It says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For we have, for the word spoken through angels prove unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So we were talking about that, and we did get that verse discussed, but I didn't get a chance to hand out the cross-references to verse 3. So we... Just, uh, if you weren't here, uh, our conclusion was that we ought not to neglect salvation. Okay? <laughs> Obviously. And that the answer to the question is we won't escape if we neglect salvation. And the word neglect there doesn't mean reject, but just means to show lack of concern for. And isn't that the case with most of the people that we know in the world, that they... They, they say, well, I guess Christianity is alright, or Jesus is alright, or church is alright, but I'm not too worried about it. It's a lack of concern. Yeah. Reminds me, uh, a friend of mine went to a funeral, Lutheran funeral, he's a devout Lutheran, but nevertheless, he said he was the only one who had a Bible in the service. He could look up verses when the preacher was taught and the man was taught. I mean, there's neglect. Uh, yeah. The whole church doesn't have a Bible, doesn't bring out a Bible, doesn't say the word I mean, and in the atheist is sitting there. With the Bible word. I mean, here's the neglect, and there's, you know, it's just disgusting. <laughs> hey, that is an amazing thing. Uh, one of our members, Keith Jeptoff, has uh, been going on to the pagan, there's a website called infidels.org. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's got this made a real dialogue going on with these pagans and atheists about uh, the God, about the Bible. And what's amazing is how well some of these people know the Bible. Amen. My first comment on that Keith was that he doesn't have enough to do. The second was that story that he started, I just downloaded just to see how long it was. 28 pages. It was only been on this thing for a couple of days. Yeah. That tremendous play on that yeah, if you're been on those kind of things on a website, well, we have it on our website where people, somebody will put in their opinion, then the next one does, and the next one does, and you get to discuss things. Well, he's discussing his view of Christianity with the atheists and pagans on this infidels.org, and 28 pages worth, I guess. So. But I read, some, I read one of the things in there that the guy responded, that guy knows the Bible, some of these pagans. Too bad the Christians don't study their Bible as well as the pagans study, and they're just doing it to try to refute it. Amen. You know. Amen. Okay, let's look up passages. Why don't we start in the back row over here? Pete, Matthew four seventeen. Uh, you don't have your own Bible. You do. That's a Bible. Okay, then you can look up Luke twenty four forty seven forty eight. Alyssa, is that it? Alicia. Alicia. Luke 24, 47, 48. And Daniel, John 3, 16 through 18. I think you can find John 3, 16 in the Bible. <laughs> I gave him an obscure one. <laughs> John 3, 16 to 18. And then Judah, John 15, 27. I got a whole lot of them here. 
This is all about the fact that we ought not to neglect salvation. Yes? Okay, Matthew 4.17 for Pete, Alicia, Luke 24.47.48. And where was I? Um, Artis, Acts 4.12. Norma, Acts 10.40-42. Sam, 1 Thessalonians 5.7. And who's next over there? Brian? 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. And that's... Is there, okay, nobody behind the pillar. Skip. Revelation 6, 16 and 17. Okay, are you ready to go? Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is essential to the gospel. Now, there are those who deny that, but in order to make sure that it's very clear that repentance is part of the call of the gospel, we'll read the Great Commission, and that's in Luke 24, 47 and 48. It must be preached that men be sorry for their sins and turn from them. Then they will be forgiven. This must be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are to tell what you have seen. See, I will send you what my father promised. But you are to stay in Jerusalem until you have received power of the Lord. Okay. And that is... And, um, it says repentance, or there it says you must be sorry, that, was that translation, but a literal translation would say repentance for forgiveness of sin must be preached. Right? Now, so how could somebody say repentance has nothing to do with the gospel if the Great Commission says repentance, and as, as mentioned in Luke's, repentance for forgiveness of sin should be preached to all nations. So, what does it mean to repent? Well, it's not Roman penance. No, it's not. People are sorry for their sins thousands and billions and trillions and trillions of times and going to hell. I love, I repented of my sins. Every man most sin a thousand times over. Ask Jesus to help me and I'm lost as could be. The word of repentance is he that believeth, he that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. But the battle is belief and unbelief. The Pharisees were very devout, but they would repent of their unbelief who Jesus Christ was. That he is God. So they were very devout. The repentance is to repent of the sin that has sent you to hell. is unbelief in who Christ is, what he's done, and what he's going to do into the future. Not penance. Everybody's sorry. And asked. First of all, you can't be sorry for your sins, really, until you trust Christ as your Savior. Then you can have the sorrow. No one like, like Paul and he's putting everybody in prison. And when he got knocked off his horse and he put his faith in Christ, realized what he really did. Same with me. I was sorry, sorry. But now I'm sorry that I didn't trust in the Lord. That was my sin. I realize now what Christ did for me. Amen. I'm sorry, Jesus. You've got to let me in. I'm sorry. Come into my heart. I'm sorry. Come into my heart. I didn't understand what he did for me. Now I serve out of gratitude. I'm terrible dead. Well, you know, uh, when I explained that, <laughs> what's your point? He said. <laughs> 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 I mean, think of it. I'm sorry. I mean, billions of times, trillions of times, I'm sorry, Jesus. You know, come on. Okay. Okay. 
Well, the way I explain it is this. Repentance means turning away from trusting man to trusting God through Jesus Christ. And it, isn't there a passage in Ashford or something like that? Maybe that's one of these cross references that we had to turn from vain idols to serve the living God. There's this idea of the idol we like because we made it ourselves, and if we get mad at it, we can throw away and get a different one. But God is the living God, and He's the judge. We can't just throw Him away. He's he can take care of Himself. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think the point you just made bears repeating because I know a lot of people that think that repentance is turning away from their sin, and then when they sin again, they think, well, I never did repent. It is a turning of your lifestyle, but it's also trusting in God. Yeah, it, the key issue is who we're trusting. And then admitting that sin is sin. You know, we're not claiming a right to anything. And then admitting that we need God's grace to give us victory over sin. It all comes together as a package. I'm going to preach about that this morning. The sermon's on the rich young ruler. I think it may surprise us that some of the things that Jesus said to people. And I'll try to explain this morning, through the gospel, how you can have these really rigorous things that Jesus says that nobody could or would do. And how can that can be part of gospel preaching because it shows you that you need God. You know, because if you, if you lower the standard down far enough, you know, maybe he, people could do it without Christ. And so that's sort of what the world religions do, you know, good works. But if you see the true standard is perfect obedience to Christ, you can't do it. It shows you your need for a Savior. Law, law and gospel. Let's not get off track now. Thank you, Alicia, for quoting that for us. Uh, John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not carry it, but that must have been in the life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him is judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's really clear, isn't it? That's very clear, especially if you quote it all the way through 18. He who does not believe is already condemned. He who believes is not condemned. So the real issue there is who believes and who doesn't believe. Right? That's what it is. Faith versus unbelief. And neglecting a great salvation is unbelief. All right, John 15, 27. Oh, yeah, that's, that last phrase in, in Hebrews 2, 3 says, confirmed to us by those who heard, right? So the suggestion is that this great salvation, which was announced by Jesus himself, was confirmed by the apostles. So John fifteen twenty seven says, you've been with me, and you will testify of these things. And so the Holy Spirit will come upon the apostles, um, and they will be... The ones who had announced Messianic salvation starting in Acts chapter 2 and then all the way through the, the New Testament. So it's a very clear message and it was confirmed by what Jesus said and did and it's also confirmed by those eyewitnesses who he sent forth. Acts 4.12, artists. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men. 
<laughs> Is that clear enough? Whereby we must be saved. It isn't an option. You know, the gospel isn't really presented in the New Testament as an option. It's presented as the way to God. You know, but that's why modern religious consciousness doesn't like it, because we like to have a, what do they call it, um, diverse, multicultural pluralism. <laughs> Simple word, pluralism. Everybody gets to be right. It always lead to God. Is that true? Do always read to God? <laughs> There's a lot of ways that lead to places where you don't want to go. Talk about that this morning, about that narrow gate. Acts 10, 40 to 42, Norma. He has gone raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us. To give and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. Yeah, so the, the apostles there were saying that they were ordained by Jesus Christ to be his messengers of the gospel. And they saw him, they ate a drink with him. Yes. That was Acts 10 40 and 42. So they're, they're claiming the, the, that they're authorized to speak on behalf of Christ the gospel because they were his eyewitnesses. 1 Thessalonians 5 3, Sam. For when, for when they shall say peace and safety and sudden destruction cometh upon them, as prevaileth by the woman and child, and they shall not escape. All right, now, that, the reason that's a cross-reference to this is, how shall we escape if we neglect, which means show lack of concern for great salvation? 1 Thessalonians 5, 3 says, when they are saying peace and safety, then comes sudden destruction, and they shall not escape. And we know that in the end, at the end of the age, at least that's how I understand this. Um, Dave Hunt wrote a book called Peace, Prosperity, and the Come in the Holocaust back in '83. I thought it was very profound in the sense that people were saying everything's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse, and finally it'll get so bad in the world, and there'll be so many wars and so many things going on that the, that the world will turn to Antichrist. It's all the problems. And Dave Hunt's study of the prophecies suggested that actually the thing that will get the world ready for Antichrist is world peace. That as, the, as you have raise the boundaries of the nations and you get everybody's language you know through computers or whatever as the languages are translated and the whole world is hooked up into one big system that that will be the thing that's the background for Antichrist and I was an amazing thing about that we asked him about that on the radio when I J.M. Markell interviewed Dave Hunt and I here a few months ago we asked him about that and, see, I was How'd you think about that? Isn't that amazing? Because in '83, everybody had the opposite thing to say, and and here, what happened was we did end up with the peace, so to speak. Okay, so peace and safety, and then comes sudden destruction. One Peter four seventeen and eighteen. It's uh, Brian. For the time is arrived for judgments begin with the household of God and begins with us. What will we be? The end of those who do not respect or believe or obey the good news of the gospel of God. 
you know, a, a noble Roman citizen would never have to suffer that fate. Now, when he explains, MacArthur explains that so clearly, and he says, so when Paul says we preach Christ crucified um, to the Jews in offense and to the Greeks foolishness, he says, this, nobody's going to believe this. Absolutely nobody will listen to this. You basically offended everybody in the first century by saying that. Because you're saying that your God died in the most horrific death and that reserved for the common scum of the earth criminals. And he says, now, if you want a popular message, you're not going to preach that. So, it's hard to believe. <laughs> it's hard to believe. But he says, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so MacArthur is urging that we preach the Bible and preach the gospel accurately as Christ and the apostles did, and realizing up, up front that it's not a new thing that people are offended by it, because they were in the first century. It's not a new thing that it's not popular. It never has been. But it is means that God will use to save whom will be saved. And, and that's his way of doing so. And MacArthur's reading that is just bringing me a lot of joy and confidence and clarity about the gospel. You think the gospel is so simple that once you learn it, you can learn any more about it? I feel like I'm learning more every day, and I've been doing this for a while. Yes, sir. One interesting point that he makes is there is, I mean, I've heard this oftentimes, well, I not everyone's getting saved, you're not doing it right, but get your act together. We've got to, to change something. If you're not safe, a horde of people aren't getting saved. He says, okay, take your parents, but what about Jesus? Because look at Jesus. He didn't have waves of people following. He ended up being crucified. They gave him some bad things. And it was just really interesting how he took their friends and just said, okay, take the greatest example out there. No one's going to debate that Christ <laughs> yeah, John, you know, a good illustration of that is John chapter 6. Because he starts out in John 6 with everybody following him, and by the time he gets done preaching, they all left. <laughs> so except for a handful. <laughs> so, and what made them leave in John 6? Anybody remember? What made all these people leave? The flesh and the blood. He crucified. He might, says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll not have life within you. You know, all right, we're out of here. <laughs> See you later. And so much so, Peter says, Jesus, do you know you're offending everybody? Uh, right. Another uh, uh, kind of Old Testament analogy to the whole issue with my scriptures is the Noah and the Ark. Got um, a couple points. Number one is Noah, it, it says in Peter, he was a preacher of righteousness. So he was going out and calling people to repentance. How many people um, came to the end of the ark? Eight, as much as it's been, they all rejected it. So that's the point. Plus, there wasn't any other um, vessel of salvation other than the ark. Mm-hmm. You couldn't go and change and say, okay, well, we'll build a little bar over here, we'll build a little bit <laughs> here, you're going to be all right. No, the only way that you're going to be saved is through God's ordained means of yeah. the ark. And the same way with others is, I mean, was that foolishness at that time? You know, you of course, they'd never seen a flood. We didn't hear rain. Was that foolishness? Is that hard to believe? Yeah. 
very hard to believe. We're going to have a big flood. What's that? I've never heard of. But we're, aren't we doing the same thing, right? In the sense that we see that Peter says that the elements will be destroyed by fire. Nobody's ever seen that happen. No. No. So why should they believe us anymore than they believe no? Yeah, that's what we're calling. We, we do have future information that we can, in a sense, uh, prophesy, not in the sense that we're saying anything new, but we're proclaiming, uh, just like we read in Revelation, the wrath of the Lamb's coming and the elements are going to be burned by fire, repent to believe the gospel. So there's there's an element of, of prophecy there, not in the sense, well, we're, we're predicting something's going to happen. Yeah. Why would you believe that? You know, the day of when I got saved, the day I got saved, one of the things that led me to the Lord was uh, Diane telling me that the rivers and oceans or the waters would all turn to blood. That's in Revelation. Now, why would somebody get saved here and now? <laughs> but, it, but it's, it's the Holy Spirit that I get. Cause he, when I saw that in the Bible, I go, yeah. The ocean, the water's all going to turn to blood. I think it better repent. So preach it the way it is. And let God do His work of grace in hearts. And some people will rejoice and some will get angry. And So what else is new? Alright, let's go on. Hebrews 2.4 God also bearing witness with them. Now the them here are is a reference back to verse 3 where it says, confirmed by those who heard. Alright, so them being the apostles... Also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. So, this, the idea is that this great salvation that was proclaimed by the apostles is verified by God's own acts, the things that God did that accompanied their preaching showed that they indeed were the ones that were the eyewitnesses, that they were the authoritative apostles of, of uh, Jesus Christ, and that their message, which was the same one he preached, repent and believe the gospel, was true. So that's what it means to bear witness. And so thus the accountability is made even greater by the things that God did to demonstrate that the gospel was indeed from him. So, yes. Connect back to the uh, second verse where, where it says it was first spoken to the Lord and then confirmed. Yes. So they're referring to the apostles. Right. The writer is referring to the apostles, the, the, uh, the apostles were simply, not simply, but confirming and making making true and carrying on the same message that came from Jesus himself. Right. It was, so it's a reference to the apostles. Right. <laughs> okay. It would be a verse that would support the. Uh, well, it would certainly support the idea that there are certain things unique to them, that they were uniquely apostles, and that God did things to demonstrate that. Um, that I, I, and also, I think another thing that we're going to look up here is it shows that, that this is according to God's will. And I think one of the big problems with the Science of Wonders movement is a suggestion that if you just learn how to do it, anybody can go out and do signs and wonders. Um, and so the, the reason we don't have more signs and wonders is that we just didn't go to the right course, or we didn't go to the right seminar. Right? But it, uh, I don't believe that, because it says that this is according to God's will. God can still do supernatural acts. 
if, if he so wills. Yes. Um, I've been doing a long study on the Holy Spirit, and I got to one part this last week where I was um, looking at some specific verbs that are, are used in reference to the Holy Spirit coming on someone, and I, I was looking at um, the word come upon, and it's only used two times in reference to the Holy, um, the Holy Spirit coming on someone, and one time is when Mary, when the angel speaks to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive, and then the other one is Jesus speaking to the disciples in Acts 1, where he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and will be my witnesses, and the verb is a super strong verb in the Greek, I mean, it's like it's something coming over you that there's no way of, you know, of turning back. A resisting and, and it's a, it's a, and it's used in a couple other places, like somebody coming upon you and over overtaking you, um, you know, in a way that you can't. And it's, so it's only yeah, verb is used quite. And that intensity in those two instances. Mary and the and then the Now, 
what you can just see, just surveying the Bible, is that the same thing happens, not the same, but a similar thing happens in the initiation of the New Covenant. That when God begins the New Covenant, he does so with this great outpouring of his powerful presence. Both the Pentecost, the very the things that were done by Jesus, his miracles, the miracles that are done in Acts at the hands of the apostles. Now, just as in the Old Testament you have this, this huge outpouring of the miraculous at the initiation of the covenant, things still happen later in, in, in the Old Testament, but not as frequently and not as intensely. And I think it's like that in the New, that the initiation has all of these miracles and signs and wonders and stuff, but then the carrying out throughout the rest of history, you see less of that. Would you yeah, agree? I think there's really something to that, and you can even add another one to that, because you look at the big events in salvation history, uh, the flood, the, um, the exodus, the first coming, and then you have the second coming. Because the second coming is, would fall in line with all those things. Because the second coming, obviously there's going to be a huge um, influx, uh, like there probably never had been before, of manifestations of the presence of the Lord. Because when you go through the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, no one's denying that these aren't coming from the hand of God. They're cursing God. And they're visible. And they're, they're so visible, no one can escape them. Yeah. You know, you go back, a lot of these things were made, relate back even to the Exodus, you know, because you look at, we, you talk about the water and the blood. Tribulation, there's going to be two kinds of signs. The false ones, the Antichrist, and then there's going to be the two witnesses. And then the manifest judgment of God that can be visibly seen. Yeah, you look at the two witnesses, namely, you read what they can, you know, do. They yeah. And then people are cursing God because they know who's doing it. Yeah, You'd think they'd repent, but it says they did not repent. I don't know why man's impressed with finite miracles. Look at the Jews. Every time God worked with fabulous miracle. They went into unbelief. The infinite miracle of salvation. People just take it for granted. These finite miracles compared to salvation are nothing. I don't care if it's in Revelation. I mean, they called out fire from heaven. It's an unbelief. That's why this John 3.16 is so neglected, like Pastor said. The more you study that verse, it is so powerful. It's for infinite will be in heaven praising God for what he's done. The, the infinite miracle is the salvation. The finite miracles, what are they? Compared to salvation. The Jew, he worked all those miracles. As soon as he did it, they wanted to kill Moses. They saw it. They saw just as big a miracle they going to come and you know, you know, that's a, that's a theme uh, in the New Testament, is that Jesus is like Moses, only greater. greater. So the miracles happened in the time of Moses, and they died in unbelief. The miracles happened at the hands of Jesus, and they reject him. And so we have a, a doctrine, right? And miracles happen at the end of the age. They, they curse God and they die in unbelief. Um, and so, the people that say, if we only saw more signs, then we'd come to faith? No. Is that true? No. Is that true? What about the Lazarus? Uh, the, uh, Luke 16. He says, he, this guy's in Hades, tormented. He says, send me back so I can warn my brothers. And if, if, I, if I already saw this, and if I came back and warned them, they'll all repent. 
And what did Jesus say? He said, no, even if a man come back from the dead, Jesus Christ come back from the dead, rose from the dead, they, didn't they believe. still won't believe. <laughs> he says they have Moses and the prophets, and if they won't believe the scriptures, neither will they believe if a man comes back from the dead. And Jesus Christ came back from the dead. Those Romans, did anybody get a better view of the whole thing than the Roman soldiers? Absolutely nobody. What, what happened with those Roman soldiers? They took money to lie that the disciples stole the body. Now, why didn't they come to faith? They saw a miracle. Yeah, it goes back to the other last verse. He was raised from the dead, and what happened to that poor guy? They wanted to kill him again. <laughs> Lazarus died. Jesus raised him. They were so mad because everybody was following Jesus because he raised Lazarus. They wanted to kill Lazarus. So, so what cures this evil in the human heart that rejects God, even in the face of signs and wonders? Well, the gospel. The gospel and the, and the Holy Spirit that would turn a, a hard heart into a heart of flesh. And God says, I'll circumcise your hearts that you might serve me. In Ephesians, Ezekiel 36. Yeah, the miracle we're really called to believe on. I mean, we're not ever really called to chase signs and wonders. The only miracle we're supposed to fix our eyes on is the resurrection. Amen. Right. Well, signs signify. Now, the word sign here means to signify something. And so if somebody says, well, I saw a sign, I, boy, I, the thing to ask is, what did it signify? If you see a sign on the road, it might say yield, it might say stop, it might say go 55. All right? But it signifies something. A sign that doesn't signify means nothing. It's worthless. If they just put a circular white sign on the side of the road and it had no, not, said nothing on it, and the symbol didn't mean anything, you, you just, what are you going to get out of it? So somebody, uh, <laughs> I used to say to the people that went to the Signs and Wonders meeting, and they were telling me how great it was. And they said, this boy, well, this great prophet of God, this one guy was telling me, I went and I heard the great prophet of God. I said, well, how do you know he's a great prophet of God? Because he he called people out by name in the in the that he didn't know. All right. What else did he do? Well, he'd tell people what they had in their pocket. He'd call. He'd say to this guy, "You stand up." And the guy stand up. He says, "You have a, a a knife, a pen, and a comb in your pocket." Look at that. He's a prophet from God. No, I, I said to the guy, well, why do you need the prophet to tell you you got a knife, a pen, and a comb in your pocket? You could have checked yourself. And, and I, so then I, so I began to ask the guy that went to the meeting and told me all about this. I said, well, what was this guy preaching? I mean, what, what, was, what did that signify? The fact that he could do that, what did that signify to you? What did you, what were you supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to believe that God still has prophets. Yeah, but the signs in the Bible all point to Jesus as the Messiah. See, when the, when the signs happened in the book of Acts, they were always preaching Messianic salvation, and the signs confirmed what word? The Gospel. And so, if the Gospel is being preached, and God does miraculous things in that context, which He can still do, still heals, He still does things, then what's confirmed is the Gospel. But when somebody can do a sign... The, the points that they have certain powers that we're supposed to believe in, that can be replicated by the occult. And so you, you need to judge the message, not just what happens there. There's several verses in Scripture that don't have the addresses right off of uh, Evil and adulterous generation seeks after signs and wonders. Yeah. And it just points to the fact that we shouldn't be chasing all the 
pop culture church activities necessarily, but the barking and the spirit and so forth. Yeah. Chasing the signs and wonders as proof to the Holy Spirit working in a particular church, we should be seeking Jesus and not the signs and wonders. Yeah, and what did he say? One sign will be given to this adulterous generation. The sign of Jonah. And and Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1. Yes, Diane. Jesus was going through the countryside and with his disciples and he was healing and casting out demons. Yeah. And then he got to the point where he had healed one and um, used man put his fingers yeah. and spit on his tongue. And the Pharisees were following him and they said, do a sign for us. He had been doing that all over the country. Yeah. All kinds of people were healed. And the Pharisees still said, we need a sign. Yeah, exactly. And so Paul's, Paul says, the Jews seek signs, but we preach Christ crucified. And that's the one sign that God promised to give. And, that, and we can be assured of that. There's one sign that God said that he would give to all people to demonstrate who he was. And that's the cross and the resurrection. He said, this, that's the one sign I'll give you when they challenge him. He said, that that's the sign of Jonah, three days, so will the Son of Man be three days in the earth and come out. And when, when he says, when I'm raised from the dead, that is, confirms that he was God, that he was the Savior, that he was the Jewish Messiah, that he was the promised one, that he was the prophet that Moses predicted, that he was the suffering, suffering servant that Isaiah predicted, and that he was the one. And that having done that sign, he has not obligated himself to do more. Now, if he does, that's his business, according to his will, it says here. If he so wills to do other things, that's his business. But there's one sign that obligates everyone to believe the gospel, and that's the resurrection. And that's why, by the way, the resurrection needs to be preached with the gospel every time the gospel is preached. Because if you don't preach the resurrection, you're not preaching the one sign that tells people, you found a brother, man. Beat it, man. So if you don't preach the resurrection, you're not telling people the one sign that obligates them to believe in the gospel. All right. Would that be a sign and wonder when they caught Peter pop off with a secret microphone in his ear and they out in the audience and get information and then they, uh, you know, I wonder if it works like this. I'm getting a word of knowledge. Hold on a second. <laughs> Sorry, I got it. <laughs> I know. I have a I have a video of that of a, of what they caught him again. I got a video of it where they they had a hidden camera in a lady's handbag and they went to one of these meetings and they saw how he's giving these revelations. He'd have people planted in the foyer and they'd watch people come in and they'd watch him come in and they just listen to him talk. And this guy would just, here's these two guys, and there's two guys smoking cigarettes outside the auditorium before they come in, you know. And the guy watches them and he kind of stands there and listens to them talk. And one says, calls the other one Jerry, you know, says, hey, Jerry, uh, and they're smoking a lucky strike, and they said a few things. Well, then they come in, and they sit there, and then this information is given to the evangelist. And he says, you there, do you know me? Nope. You ever seen me before? Nope. 
Well, I'm going to tell you right now, your name is Jerry. Wow. And you smoke Lucky Strikes. Whoa. See, <laughs> 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 yeah, it wouldn't be too hard to be an evangelist if you're just clever enough. You know what's the sad part about that? Whenever I've seen those, at least Mr. Popoff, um, on TV, he's always in the course of four weekends. You know, it's, it's taking these people. Taking people that, I mean, I, you know, he goes overseas and just to these third world countries and, you know, takes their money and it's just, you know, it's, it, it's, it's really, it's, the sign there is a sign of, of tradition. It really is. Because he's, he's a special place for him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if he doesn't vent, he, he's, yeah. he's very clear. There was a movie about that where the guy repented at the end. Yeah, I think it was there's a movie about a sham evangelist going around uh, in his bus and doing all this kind of stuff and at the end God actually does something and he realizes that God's real and he better quit and he's, he gets out of the preaching business and leaves town it wasn't actually too bad of a movie um, would have got some of these actual evangelists to repent like they did in the movie Okay, let's look up some verses here. Um, Diane Bukowski, Acts 14.3, Jim, Romans 15.18 and 19, and um, Dick, 1 Corinthians 12.11. I think it's a key thing that it's according to his own will. God is sovereign, and he, we don't know when he's going to heal somebody when we pray for them or when he'll do something remarkable, but he does. He does, and we're commanded to pray for the sick, but we just pray for him. But it's according to God's will. Acts 14.3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly to the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Okay. That's exactly what the author he was just talking about. Romans 15, 18, and 19. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished for me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. The power of signs and wonders, and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as... What is that? (laughs) Is it Iconium? Lystra, Iconium? Illyricum. Illyricum. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ as far as I can. Okay. And 1 Corinthians 12, 11. The one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So even the, the spiritual gifts given to the church are also controlled by the will of God as he wills. So you don't, it isn't this thing where you go to a course and learn how to do it. Right? There's a book out of Course of, course of Miracles. Those guys preaching, they were just a little of fishermen, you know? You're the eloquent thing speaking. Yeah. Yeah. They took the course. They took the course. They spent three years with Jesus. I think it's a good course. That's the best seminary in the land, three years with Jesus. <laughs> best seminary anybody ever went to. 
Hebrews 2.5, let's move along. For he did not subject to the angels. I've got to read here a few verses because um, there's a citation here of Psalm 8. For he did not subject to the angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that thou rememberest him or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, then we'll, there's a comment on that, but it's a citation from um, Psalm 8. So, we still are in a section where the author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus, the Messiah, is superior to angels. Amen. And so, after this admonition to not neglect messianic salvation and a warning that well again the angels are at play here because verse 2 says that the word spoken through angels was inalterable or legally valid uh, how much greater the word spoken through Jesus the son and we talked about the fact that the Jews believe that the law was given through the mediation of angels at Sinai so now he goes on and looking and looks on to the future so in the past we saw the, the lesser to the greater argument from the old covenant with angels and the new covenant with Jesus himself. And now he's looking forward to the world to come, the order of affairs that lies yet in the future. And what he's going to suggest here is that as we look into the future, we're going to see even more vividly the superiority of Christ. Amen. That his manifest glory awaits and that he has a plan that we don't yet see. And so he's going to talk about uh, Jesus in his humiliation and his incarnation and then his ultimate future glory that awaits in the future and then how we fit into that as heirs of salvation. So that's where we're going with the argument here in Hebrews. Now, verse 5, For he did not subject to angels the world to come. We talked about this earlier. It's the same word world, which means the inhabited world, as used in 1.8, concerning which we are speaking, picking up uh, the theme of Christ's superiority to angels. Uh, Joanne, if you could look up Revelation 11.15, I have some citations here that I wanted to read. Revelation 11.15, and I have here... um, William Lane commenting on this. He says this, Although God has entrusted the administration of the terrestrial world to the angels, their prerogatives did not extend to the heavenly world to come. The formulation reflects an allusion to Deuteronomy 32.8, which speaks of the angelic government of the world. This was in the Septuagint. In the old Greek version, the text reads, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he established boundaries for the nations according to the numbers of the angels of God. Now, now that was the Septuagint. Now, it's not how the Masoretic text reads. But it's possible that this is an allusion to the Septuagint, which the writer of Hebrews is using the Septuagint all the way through here and alluding to things in it. The Septuagint speaks of angels more than the Masoretic text does. 
Um, now, the inspired one is, of course, the Hebrew. Then he goes on. The establishment of the boundaries for nations according to the number of the angels of God implied that the nations of the world have been subjected to angels. The nations of the world have been subjected to angels. The heritage of the new people of God, however, lies not in the present world, but in the new creation inaugurated by the enthronement of the Son. So the future world ruled by the Son. That's his, that's his argument here. Uh, it's not one we would have picked up because we wouldn't have understood the Jewish thinking at the time. Right? Now, not only that, I've got Kistemacher here. I've got, actually I went into another commentary too, now I've got four of them on Hebrews. sure takes a long time to study when you're reading four commentaries. But I'll tell you what, it's, I'm enjoying the process though. This is um, Simon Kistemacher who says the same thing. Um, why does the writer teach that the world to come will not be subject to angels? The author and the original readers were accustomed to reading the Old Testament in the Greek translation, the Septuagint. This translation differs from the Hebrew text. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, he divided all mankind. He set up boundaries for the people according to the number of the sons of Israel, Deuteronomy 32.8. The Greek translation relies on another Hebrew reading, which was discovered at Qumran. The text in the Septuagint reads, according to the number of the angels of God. So there's actually a Qumran Hebrew text that says angels also. So that's where that came from. Now, see, you didn't know that before, did you? <laughs> see, you got to learn something when you come to Sunday school. Okay, Revelation 11:15, Joanne. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Amen. So Christ will... Yeah, that's in Handel's Messiah, isn't it? Is that what you're thinking of? <laughs> that's a, I haven't listened to Handel's Messiah for a while. It's time. <laughs> the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. Was that? Yeah, it did. That's a, it's unbelievable music. One of the things I used to do years ago, was I think about Easter we do this, was set up the best sound system we could come up with and, and get out. Back when we were living at Daystar, we'd do this. I don't know if you remember. We'd get out a couple of different sound systems and hook them together and try to make it sound like a big concert, set up chairs. And then I had a, a version from the 1960s of the London Symphony doing Handel's Messiah. And I had gone through the whole thing and looked up all the scriptures and handed out to everybody that was going to listen to scripture references to all of Handel's Messiah. And so we opened up the Bible and just followed Handel's Messiah through with the scriptures and see, and see how skillfully he integrates the Old Testament prophecy. And uh, there's a guy who's not only a great uh, music, you know, musician, but somebody who really knew the Bible, knew Bible prophecy. So, awesome. So the kingdoms of Israel. <laughs> I can't. Don't count the hands on the side. I can't sing along with it. <laughs> Beyond me. Okay. Uh, well, let's start the thing with Psalm 8. Let's introduce it. We've got about one minute. We are, this thing about Psalm 8 is um, 
Let me just read it from Psalm 8. And as David contemplating the greatness of the universe and the insignificance of man in comparison. And he's wondering how a God who could create something so glorious as this beautiful universe that we live in be concerned about something so small as a person. Right? Psalm 8. I'll just read the whole thing. It's only nine verses. O Lord our God, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? If thou hast made him a little lower than God, there again thou the, the Septuagint says angels, and sometimes Elohim can refer to angels. So made him a little lower than God, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands, thou hast put all things under his feet. The sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds, heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord our God, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Now, in the Old Testament Hebrew, he's thinking about man's place in creation from Genesis 1, as having a dominion over the subhuman creation. Now, the author of Hebrews takes this, and I'll, I'll read some material about it next week, but he takes this and applies it to Christ, all right? in sort of an analogical way, in that Christ, in his abasement, in his laying aside his divine prerogatives, and coming, makes himself man, a little lower than the angels, at least in his humanity, and tastes death for every man, it says. And then in his exaltation, he raises the lot of man, Okay, so there's this play on the first and last Adam and man and Christ and Christ and his humanity and Christ and his exaltation. It's a little bit complex, but guess what? It's in the Bible. You know, people say, oh, you can't, you can't do anything. It's too hard for people to understand. Yeah, my answer is, the Bible was written in, in the first century before we had institutions of higher education and computers and Literacy and all these opportunities to do translate and know all this stuff. And these semi-literate, some of them, first century Jewish people were expected to understand this. And it's too much for modern Americans? What does that say about us? So then I say, well, it isn't that we can't understand this, that we don't want to. So let's just put our thinking hats on and dig in there and see what, what Paul, or I mean the author of Hebrews says about Psalm 8 and how it applies to Christ and how it applies to us. Next week, you don't want to miss it.